0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, a host of the channel and currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming, studying cultural history, focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nana Kalund about her new book, Explorations in the Icy North How Travel Narratives Shaped Arctic Science in the 19th Century, published by the University of Pittsburgh. Press in 2021. Dr. Nana Kalund, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Aspen. It's a pleasure being here.
0: And thank you for being willing to to come on and and talk with us today. Um, Before we get into this most excellent book, um, I was hoping you would tell tell our audience a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Um, My name is Nana, and um, I'm originally from Denmark. So um, I did my my uh, early training in history of ideas at Aarhus University and um, then I was lucky enough to get an Erasmus scholarship to go to the University of Leeds where I studied history and philosophy of science and I got really interested in Victorian science during that period and um, following that I was lucky again to get a visiting research fellowship to University of Toronto uh, which was lucky, especially because I had actually met um, the person who would later become my husband at University of Leeds. So we moved to Toronto afterwards. So I've been back and forth a few times, and I did my, uh, did my PhD at um, York University in Toronto before moving back to England. And now I'm back in Copenhagen in Denmark, um, enjoying the, the terrible weather actually right now.
0: Well, it sounds like you've had... Uh quite a one uh, an interesting time traversing back and forth across the atlantic and um and then getting into into the the philosophy of of science along with with the 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 victorian um age um and that kind of leads us into into the book itself so so would you would you like to tell us how um you just came to write explorations in the icy north
1: yeah it's actually funny because it started I think with John Tyndall, the 19th century physicist and mountaineer, and it's it's funny because Tyndall doesn't really feature in my book. I don't think he's mentioned at all. But I was working on some of his on some of his uh, his his publications, and I got really fascinated by how he how he used his mountaineering expertise because he he went to the Swiss Alps and traveled and studied glaciers there. And I got really interested in how he used that experience to further his scientific career and vice versa. So he also used his scientific expertise to further his mountaineering credibilities. And that sort of interplay between travel and mountaineering and science sort of really stuck with me. And so originally I was actually thinking I was going to do more on that Focusing in particular on environmentalism and environmental history and climate science. But then when I, when I moved to Canada, I got introduced to a lot of new research on, on the Arctic. And that really fit nicely in with my interest in you know, environmental studies and, and history of the climate sciences. And I took some... Um, so the PhD system, as you you may know, the PhD system in Canada is very similar to the one in the US where you do uh, PhD coursework and then a comprehensive exam. And I had some really great people that I worked with. Um, I took some courses on transnational history and on North American environmental history. And for one of those courses, I, I wrote a paper that I actually never published, but I should, I think, at some point, on Josephine Peary, who you may know, uh, traveled with her husband Robert Peary to North Greenland, an American American explorer, and it got me thinking about how how we how we've constructed this idea of who is an explorer because historically it's been Robert Peary who was the more famous one compared to you know his wife, but she traveled as well. And so one has been canonized as an explorer and the other one only recently in, you know, in the last few years has been considered an explorer as well. And that really got me thinking about how we've categorized these things. And so you can see how that sort of like came to form the foundation of this idea that the relationship between travel and science is constructed in one way or the other, and that it's Intimately linked to our understanding of who is an explorer. And so it goes back to Tyndall again, right? So how do someone portray themselves as an expert on a region and on sciences in that region? Well, they've been doing it historically through having a physical presence in that area. And that physical presence isn't just about being there but about being there in a very specific way. And then again, about portraying that presence in a specific way. So not everyone who went a place was, by definition, described as an explorer or viewed as an explorer or viewed as, an, as a regional expert. It was only some people. And so that's really one of the things that I wanted to examine in my book. Like, how is that... How is that constructed, and what does that tell us about our our idea of the Arctic? Um, early in my, when I, when I studied in my undergraduate, I studied history of ideas at Aarhus University, and History of ideas is a funny feel because it's it's a type of intellectual history. You, you mix history and philosophy, and you you know you look about the history of of why we've been thinking the way we've been thinking. And so I've been really interested always in how we as societies and cultures decide what is true. And who do we consider to be true speakers? And in particular, who are these people who get to speak on behalf of nature, so the people we call the scientists. So that's some of the questions that I also really wanted to um, to sort of tackle in the book. And I think all those things are connected, right? So it's all about how do we decide who are the experts, who are the explorers and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that comes through so, so br- brilliantly in in, in your book, um, Kind of just on on that note, one of the big parts of of the of your argument and and your narrative is travel narratives. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about kind of the the um, structures and ideas of truth behind travel narratives and or contested truths behind travel narratives?
1: Yeah, I mean, travel narratives are funny genre, right? Because they're, you know, they're designed to be entertaining accounts of a voyage. Um, but in the 19th century, they also functioned as scientific repositories and as a scientific documents. So you had these like multiple functions of these narratives. And one of the really key things was that you wanted, as the explorer, when you were writing your narrative, to ensure that people actually believed what you wrote right that's sort of essential and one of the things that one of the tools that they used to to sort of get that form of veracity and truthfulness through was through this um, diary format that they utilized so you're sort of following along the explorer as they travel into the arctic and discover things and they write them down and it therefore follows that what they're writing down must be true. But this concept of truthfulness, especially as it's portrayed in the narrative, it turns out it's really it's really delicate and it's very difficult as well to uphold um, one of the one of the things that I did early on, one of the things that actually really got me started on that on that on that sort of topic was was John Ross um because he had a lot of problems. I think that's probably putting it mildly, that John Ross had a lot of problems. And so he, um, John Ross thought that he had discovered a mountain range that turned out it didn't exist. But because he said he had seen it and he wrote it down and he drew it, you know, he made a painting of this mountain range that didn't exist. It sort of really questioned everything else that he had done and everything else that he had said in these narratives, you know, in his narrative. Like, how can you trust someone if they get something like that wrong. Now, for a lot of explorers, that was one of the, you know, that's one of the the problems that they faced. Now, luckily for the explorers, you know, luckily in a sort of roundabout way is that it's very difficult to, um, verify the observations that they made because it was so expensive to send out expeditions and it was relatively difficult to get to a lot of the places in the Arctic that they traveled to. So it was hard to verify, you know, it was hard to verify what people had actually said. So you really had to trust that what the person reported was actually the truth as, at least as as they had seen it. Now Ross, you know, he, uh, he, when his, his second expedition, he, um, He again, you know, encountered problems with this persona of authority. And um, John Barrow, the second admiralty to the, um, so the second, um, I can't actually remember his title. (laughs) John Barrow, very high up in the admiralty. He, 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 he was very angry with ross from the beginning because of ross's mistake with the with the mountain range but when ross then did his second expedition which was privately financed he he really had a chance to redeem himself but as as barrow then wrote in an anonymous review of of ross's narrative you know the fidelity is really key and if you can't trust someone um then you can't trust any of their of their data and so this like construction of someone who is an authoritative observer and a and a truth speaker, was really, it was really difficult to uphold. And even for people like John Ross, who had sort of the traditional background for what we might categorize as this like standard Arctic explorer, like the heroic Arctic explorer uh, trope, he even he had problems with it. And I think that really that was sort of a roundabout way of saying that I think. The issue of of truthfulness and narratives, it really brings to the fore how culturally and temporally specific the construction of veracity is, and by extension, the construction of who is an an explorer. Because Ross wasn't invited again, you know, for a reason. Um, and we can take those lessons and we can think about who. Else had similar problems, not necessarily because of things that they themselves did, but because the way they presented themselves, or by their very uh, um, uh, uh, um, by their um, cultural or national affiliation, did not fit into the preconceived ideas of who was this um, Arctic explorer, right? So. If you have this idea that an Arctic explorer is a very specific person doing very specific things, then it, by the, by definition, um, limits your understanding of who is a traveler as well, and then of course who is a regional expert in the Arctic. So it's sort of it's all connected, and really, as historians, it's sort of hard to think about truth, you know, because truthfulness is, is a is a sticky concept; it's difficult to really get at. But for me it isn't for me it isn't as important to figure out who was actually right but more about why people thought someone was right if that makes sense
0: no that makes a lot of sense um, especially especially in our time period and then and then and then back in the in the Victorian era this is you know kind of the rise of objectivity and so there must have been an, another like, level of pressure put on on these scientists explorer hero like archetypes to to be super reliable Um, and 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 this this is kind of jumping forward but in in chapter four you talk about a later um explorer i think it was john ray who uh they were looking for the franklin expedition that was lost and then he um ends up bringing back reports of the, uh, the crew becoming cannibalistic. and um, do you want to talk about kind of that that part and then how indigenous um, voice plays into 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 that part, especially in, in a cultural context?
1: Sure. Um, so just for those who don't know, the John Franklin expedition left England in uh, 1845, I think it is and they never returned. Um, and uh, being lost in the Arctic, uh, the British government started to think about maybe sending out searching missions, and John Franklin's uh wife, Jane Franklin, she uh, organized a lot of these as well, raised a lot of money to send out expedition, and it became sort of like a a really international project. Lots of different countries sent out searching missions. It became like a whole Franklin industry. Now, what actually happened to Franklin was really difficult to figure out because you didn't—we didn't know at the time where he had gone to, or at least uh, Europeans didn't know where he had gone to. So it turned out that um, several groups of Inuit had actually seen the uh, the expedition crew at different points, but. There is a racialized, a highly racialized element to constructions of truthfulness in the nineteenth century. Now, who was considered trustworthy and whose reports were um, considered valuable was racialized and Inuit, were considered to be untrustworthy by a lot of Europeans at the time. It was highly racialized, and it was highly—I mean, so reading some of the narratives and the reports is just terrible. And it's—it's—it's it's, it's sort of this whole like colonial um, rhetoric that's that is also uh, infused into the into the project of expeditions. but so returning to Ray, Ray worked for the Hudson's Bay Company on and off. And so he surveyed a lot of the Hudson's Bay Company's territory. And while he was out serving, he uh, came across people who actually had seen the John John Franklin's expedition, and they had seen them, um, and they had seen the bodies of the dead people as well. Now, what John Ray then did was that he purchased relics from the expedition from the people he met. And he brought it back home to England with reports. Uh, he wrote it down and he brought back the relics that had belonged to the expedition as sort of evidence that this, has, this had actually happened. So there was a physical evidentiary materials as well as in addition to the oral testimony. But the the issue of cannibalism was really a sticking point, right? So um, did, did, did we want to believe that the... Uh, that this like, hero, John Franklin, like the veteran explorer, that him and his crew had actually resorted to something so horrible as cannibalizing um, each other. Now, Jane Franklin, his widow, didn't think so. She didn't think that was at all possible. And lots of people didn't think that that could be possible, right? So you then had John Ray's testimony Based on uh, Inuit testimony, Inuit oral history, versus this like iconic figure of of John Franklin um, and his sort of reputation that was at stake, almost right. But but what it turns out, and what I what I sort of discover in my book is that this was really culturally specific to Britain. In the Danish context, there wasn't this heroization of. Um, of John Franklin, and so the idea that he could have cannibalized his crew or his crew could have cannibalized each other really wasn't as um, shocking as, as it seemed to have been for a lot of um, British readers. Now, uh, John Ray, he, um, he obviously believed he was right, um, and so it sort of led to you know problems for him because Jane Franklin was really influential and she was really angry. But we can see once we sort of take a step back from focusing only on the British context and then looking to other national contexts as well, that those ideas of of both testimony and authority and also the construction of heroism was really culturally and temporally specific. And the British experience isn't the uh, universal one.
0: Thank you for bringing up that point, because obviously it is super important that, that we, we look at the other perspectives um, with, with, the, with the transnational vibe that, that you, you bring to this book. And, and so I was just curious, how did you, how did you choose the different um, nations and, and the different expeditions that, um, that you ended up narrating and, and using for analysis?
1: So it's a good question, and the answer is a bit basic, I'm afraid. Um, because I'm Danish, I speak Danish, um, it, I, I, I realized quite early on that there wasn't a whole lot of research done in English on the Danish Arctic context in for the 19th century in particular. And so I thought it was really important to get that angle um, into play. And being in Canada, I thought it was important to get some Canadian perspectives in as well. <laughs> Um, so that's that really that's how it came about, it, it, you know, of opportunism and um, and uh, physical presence. <laughs> but when it came to choosing the uh, case studies, I really I was very I was very aware that when you do a transnational study, it's very easy to lose sight of the details uh, because you're working through so many different uh, contexts now, for example, just like a very basic thing, when you talk about the um, explosion of print culture in Britain in the 19th century, it's just like a whole big thing, like how like the, you know, the expansion of uh, of the of print material, called it a printing revolution. Um, that didn't happen in Denmark during the same period. So when you're thinking about how people were able to encounter these uh, narratives and these like um, you know reports of expeditions through print media, you can't just apply the same m- mythological lens from Britain to Denmark because you had censorship, you had lots of different things going on now, so one of the things that I then wanted to make sure of was that I didn't lose sight of those details as well. Um, and I hope I did that. That was at least my intention. So what I then wanted to do was to try to find some case studies that could provide some kind of um, commonality. And that's why I followed some of the people I followed through the different chapters as well, to try to follow their stories, to try to make it easier for the reader to follow along as well. Um, so we see, for example, John Ross, he appears a few times and so does John Ray and Rink and Swersak as well appear throughout. Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's always tempting, I think, to, to write um, more, right, you know, to include so many expeditions and so many explorers, because there really is, there were so many expeditions going on for, uh, for, for, And this is one thing I think is really funny, actually, because for an activity exploration, Arctic exploration, that was portrayed as being so difficult and so arduous and so uh, heroic, there was a lot of Arctic expedition going on, you know. So you have a lot to choose from. So I wanted to find some that could really uh, sort of work together and also if not be representative, then at least provide a way of studying those broader questions that I wanted to investigate.
0: And your book does such a good job balancing the the big picture and these big questions, along with getting into the fine detail and really, really looking at each of these expeditions as, as their own individual, um, experience. And, um, so I really appreciate that. I also really appreciate um, the idea that uh, that you're bringing in the Danish perspective, and that it's going to be a lot different than the British perspective. Because especially someone someone in America, um, a, a student in America, doesn't necessarily get that um, that difference maybe right off the bat um, with the with the way we tell with the way we tell our, our histories and 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 these narratives. So along those same lines with the example of your um, example of the, of the book revolution was, is there a similar um, type of difference with the idea of like professionalization and especially something like the heroic explorer in the Danish perspective comparing to the, the British perspective?
1: Yeah, I think so. So the, the Danish the Danish Arctic history is tied up with the history of the uh, Greenlandic Trading Company. So the Kongli Kornets Gehenle, as it's called in Danish, KTH for short. And um, the KTH really had total control um, over a lot of aspects of, of, of Greenland. They controlled both the trade and they controlled also um, the administration up until uh, the early 20th century, which meant that you had to apply, when you had to apply to to uh, do expeditions, you had to apply through the trading company and the um, and the Danish government. So you sort of have that 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 aspect of governmentality is is really shaping what's going on in Greenland uh, when it came to expeditions and it came to um, exploration science. Now, what we see in in the late in the late part of the nineteenth century is that someone like uh, Heinrich Ring. Who was a Danish colonial administrator and uh, scientist? He really wanted to advance what he saw as a Danish-based research program for Arctic science in Greenland. So he um, he wanted it to be to be centered in Denmark because he wanted it, he wanted Danes to be sort of the experts in Greenland, but he wanted it to be international at the same time. Now that's sort of difficult, right? You want it to be nation nation focused, but also international. But what he did was that he was really um, he was really attuned to the to the British context. So a lot of the things that's happening in Britain at the time, you can then also see in Rink's research program, and that's where the whole like you know nothing is in a vacuum really you know comes to the fore. You can see those things much more clearly when you compare the different national contexts. But so, what's happening at the same time as as, Rink's, uh, as, as when Rink is active is the uh, first international polar year, and it's sort of the first international polar year was in many ways transformative for how um, research in the Arctic was, uh, took place, but it um it didn't change it like permanently and it didn't change it for everyone or for every time an expedition went to the arctic but it certainly really showed a different approach to how arctic science could be undertaken and in many ways so just to summarize for the listener who may not know the international polar year um, had as its as its base idea that if, if you separated travel so the whole part of the geographical discovery if you separated that from the scientific research, then you could get more out of your time during scientific research. So if you were based in either permanent or semi-permanent polar stations then you could you know do more scientific research with your time and your resources. Now that idea was sort of already happening in uh, the Danish context in Greenland because you have a lot of settlers. And now that concept of settler science is can be a little bit difficult to work with because you have people who are living, um, who identify as Danish, who are living in Greenland either permanently or uh, for an extended period of time. Um, but they're still working within that colonial system and are at the same time active producers of science. But it's a very specific type of science that isn't necessarily associated with exploration, even though it is in what we would call the Arctic context, so that was sort of a roundabout way of saying that the um, the the context for the development of science in the Arctic and science about the Arctic in the Danish context is really s- sort of tied up with those with that process of colonialism that's very specific to the to Greenland. Um, Danish colonialism in Greenland that included both the trading companies and missionaries and also um, settlers.
0: And and you say at, at the beginning of the interest in Greenland that some of these explorations weren't just for science, but they were also to um, help the Danish government um, legitimize their territorial claims. Isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah that's definitely correct. So it's, it's, I mean, it's not, a, it's not something that's unique to to Greenland or the Danish context in Greenland. It's, um, it's a broader thing, you know, like if you're physically present somewhere, then you plant your flag and then it's yours. You know, that's sort of a very colonial mentality that you could see uh, replicated all over the world, you know. Um, but in, in Greenland, if you look at a map, you can see that Greenland isn't close to Denmark at all. It's very far away. If you look at a map, it doesn't seem obvious that Greenland should be under Danish colonial governance. Now, one of the ways in which the Danish government tried to uh, establish um, their authority there was through constructing a historical link to the uh, having had a presence historically. So they they tried to find, especially in the early part of the nineteenth century, were trying to find what was described as a lost Nordic tribe. It's like mythical uh, wave of early settlers who were supposed to have then settled in Greenland, uh, being Danish and Norwegian, back then Norway was part of Denmark. Um, And if you could prove that they had actually been there, then you could say that historically, Greenland has been Danish. So you see it's a way of then using history to legitimatize the present-time colonialism. Um, so that was one of the things that they were trying to do. Now, the, I, the act of exploring or doing geographical exploration to legitimatize uh, ownership as it is of land wasn't, it wasn't only Denmark doing that. You can see that it was happening in Canadian context as well, With the Hudson's Bay Company was trying to survey what they could claim that they had uh, control over. And the British government was trying to mark their presence in the Arctic uh, with view to maybe being able to claim ownership over uh, the Northwest Passage, if, if they could find it, <laughs> or if they could find the open polar sea, then they could also say that that trading route was theirs because they had discovered it so this whole like act of like discovering to then say it's yours uh, really permeates the whole project of arctic exploration
0: yeah that's that's super insightful and then you also know that a key theme of your book is this ambivalent relationship among like commerce and discovery and then and then you have have this formal and informal science, and then you also, by using um, Johan Fuchs, um, who is a Danish pastor, you build in in religion into into this cultural context as well. So, like, how, how do you, when you were going through and 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 doing this research, how did you, um, try? Did you try to kind of demarcate these different these different sections of oh, this person's a discoverer and this person's uh, a a commercial um, backed person who's just interested in in economics and kind of the the resources or or was it way more just muddled and messy than that?
1: It's a really good question, and I think I think really what. What I found is that this cat because this category of the explorers is constructed right so who is who gets to be called an explorer is something that was decided at the time also in the in the aftermath of the expeditions. and so I started thinking about like who were the people who was actually producing knowledge about the Arctic and its and it really turns out once you broaden your idea away from the um, sort of the heroic explorer and someone who goes out and finds territory that hasn't been charted before then there's a much broader body of people who are producing knowledge and producing ideas about the Arctic because fundamentally even if someone isn't as, as the example of the missionaries even though the missionaries weren't hired to do exploration, they weren't hired to do scientific research, they still contributed to the understanding of the space and of the peoples in that space. And their work was then used, especially Funk's work was then used um, by other researchers to sort of incorporate into the broader corpus of data about, about the regions. And so what I really found was that if you take a step back and de that persistent narrative of a moment of discovery As being the central and then instead think about the process as being more important, like the whole process of knowledge making and of authority making, then you can really start to think about different stories um, and you can see different connections as well.
0: That's cool. And then to decenter de- this even more, you you really challenged the authority and control of the metropole in their ability to to have to leverage these these narratives and and these expeditions, correct?
1: Yeah, so oh, Arctic expeditions especially in the British context, but also In other contexts as well, um, were typically provided with a mission statement. So an, an, an official set of instructions is what it was called. Now the official instructions included the types of data that they were expected to produce both geographically and scientifically. And what we can see from those instructions is that they expected a lot They really wanted them to do a whole lot of work while they were, while they were away. Um, And in addition to it being very demanding, the instructions, you can also really see the uncertainty because basically when you say research anything of interest, what you're actually saying is we have no idea what's going to happen, right? (laughs) So try to get the most out of it. So if you think about it like that, you can see that because it was so hard to predict what the weather was going to be like, what the conditions were going to be like, if it would be possible to actually um, sail through the water or not, through the icy water or not, because all those things were so difficult to predict and control. The the uh, instructions really were more like suggestions or or <laughs> uh, wish lists than um, actual like uh, checklists, as it was. And one of the one of the things that I found was really kind of funny, actually, and ironic in a way, is that when the explorers had really bad luck with their geographical exploration, so when they were frozen in, for example, and stuck in the ice, they were actually able to get more scientific research done because they were sort of just based, you know, and they didn't have to bother trying to go out and doing a whole lot of geographical uh, exploration. So you could see already... Um, in the uh, in the more like traditional large scale expeditions, that that later idea in the International Polar Year of having people based more stationary uh, was actually kind of unintentionally already working and already in place in a lot of expeditions for sure. But when you look to the um, when you look to those official instructions, you can really also get a sense of just how just how little there was a sense of Arctic science as a discipline, right? So what was Arctic science wasn't really like one entity. It was more of a method, more of a methodology and um and an idea than it was a practice of science. So because they did a lot of different science, anything from ethnology to botany to uh, hydrography to geography, meteorology, uh um, glaciology you know anything you can think of with anology basically they were trying to do uh, and so when you have that like broad method you have people who aren't necessarily they aren't necessarily scientific experts in what we would think of in the traditional sense especially in the period of professionalization in the 19th century really they were information gatherers but experts in doing it in the arctic as it was
0: yeah, that's really interesting, and that that kind of segues into one character that that you bring up, and I'm gonna butcher their name. Is it is it Sursak?
1: Yeah, Sursak.
0: Um, would you like to talk about his experience on, on these expeditions because he he participated in four of them, and maybe give yep. a little bit of background and 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 why you would you decided to include his perspective?
1: So. One of the things, one of the geographical goals in the second half of the 19th century was trying to reach the North Pole. Now, one of the routes to trying to reach the North North Pole was through the northwestern part of Greenland through the the waterway known as Smith Sound. There were four large expeditions that went through Smith Sound in this period towards an attempt to, to reach the North Pole. They didn't actually get there, but they tried. Uh, three American-organized and one British-organized. Um, now, there were very different these expeditions, but what they all had in common was that they hired an Inuk explorer named Swersak, also in a period known as Hans Hendrik. Um, he was quite young when he was hired on the first expedition, which was under the um, leadership of the American surgeon-explorer Elisha Kent Kane in the um, what's called the second Grinnell expedition. Um, And then he was hired uh, with the second one under the command of Isaac Israel Hayes. Hayes had also traveled as part of Cain's expedition, so he knew Suezak from that. And then the third expedition was under Charles Francis Hall, known as the Polaris Expedition. He hired Suessac as well. And then finally, we have the British Expedition uh, under um, George Strong Nairs, known as the British Arctic Expedition of 1875, also hired him. So you have this person who's been on the four major expeditions uh, trying to reach the North Pole, uh, going through Smith Sound. And he traditionally hasn't been considered one of the main Arctic explorers of the 19th century, which to me was extraordinary, just an extraordinary oversight that really highlights how racialized the idea of who is an explorer has been. So, for example, at um, if you go to a museum um, that has polar expedition uh, memorabilia, you will see various relics from these different expeditions, but you typically won't see a picture of Suezak, even though he was with you know he was a key part of these four expeditions. Now, the interesting part about this construction or sort of erasure of him, the erasure of him as an, as an explorer, is that in the period a lot of people actually knew that he was there. A lot of people knew of his significance. And they knew this not only because he was the first Enoch explorer to write a narrative, but also because he was mentioned in the um, travel travel narratives of the previous explorers as well that he had traveled with. So you have a lot of Data about his life um from different perspectives from from four different expedition leaders wrote about his um about his work. And then he wrote his own uh travel narrative. It was published by Heinrich Rink, who I mentioned earlier. It was part of his sort of mission to establish, you know, Danish Arctic science and control the research um the research environment as it was. And now Rink it's interesting, to, it's interesting to consider why Rink decided that he wanted to publish Swiss American narrative. He translated it from Greenlandic into English and published it as an English book rather than as a Danish book. And to sort of consider that, you have to look more broadly into what was happening politically at the time and also what was happening research politically. And so Rink Ring wanted to trans Ring was the um at this point he was the um he was very very high ranking in the Royal Greenlandic trade. He was the director, which meant that he had a lot of control over the administration of Greenland. But he wasn't happy with how things had been working out. And he didn't think that the current way things were um being administered actually was good for uh Inuit Kalalit, uh Greenlandic Inuit. So he uh, he wanted to transform things. He wanted to change things, Ring, and one of the ways that he did this was publishing, Uh, narrative because Swessex narrative gave a very different look into what was happening in these expeditions. So you have sort of like the normal like traditional narratives from these European or Euro American explorers. They talk about you know how awesome they were. they went out into the arctic and they did all these great things and then they came home and everything was great now of course we know that this is a sanitized version and this is a version that was written to portray a very specific idea of themselves and of their uh, expedition um, the people who had funded their expeditions because they wanted to make sure that you could do more expeditions in the future as well right so it was quite important that they wanted to like portray themselves and the whole project in a positive light but what memoirs of hans hendrik then revealed that's the story, that's the title of the book memoirs of hans hendrik what it revealed was that not only did the explorers the european and american explorers behave really badly while in the arctic they also were fudging how they were going about doing their um, their, their uh, scientific research in the sense that it wasn't just their own scientific discoveries as they had portrayed it in the narratives. He had actually, Suezak had actually done a lot of that work. And so he's not writing this explicitly like, you know, I did this scientific research. No, but he's telling us in the narrative how he had gone out to survey the land either with or without the commander. So he, we know from his narrative that he was doing a lot of that travel work um, that was so essential. And we know that he was collecting natural history objects. He was collecting data related to ethnography, what became ethnography when it came back to England. And he was, um, yeah, he was gathering specimens as well that they collected and brought back. So he was doing a lot of that work that was then erased or rescripted as it was in the European narratives. And so... He really—it's hard. So it's hard to know exactly how much um, Rink edited because we don't. I haven't been able to find the original, um, original uh, draft before it was translated into English. But it's very clear that Svesak was was writing to also show a different view of how these expeditions actually functioned. You know, he's telling these stories about how these different explorers, how they behaved and it does not, you know, uh, show them in a positive light. We know that he was threatened with murder he was threatened with violence. He traveled with his wife and their children later um, in his later expeditions and they were threatened as well. And, in in that way it really it really at the time in the nineteenth century the publication of this book really challenged the idea of what these explorers were actually doing. So although I didn't I wouldn't say it was accepted and it had a huge uh, like a huge transformative moment in that sense, but there's no doubt looking at the reviews of the book in the British press especially, that it hit a nerve. You can see that in the reviews. They try to say, oh, well, you know, he's, um, they use a very derogatory way of talking about him. They say he's a child of nature. And they say he he writes in a simple way. And that's a way, really, of delegitimatizing what he's saying and trying to make it seem like maybe it wasn't actually so bad, you know, because he doesn't really understand. And so they had to, in the reviews, it seems like they felt that they had to resort to that type of derogatory racist language in order to sidestep his criticisms, which really otherwise would have completely reworked how these previous expeditions were presented. So I think, I mean, I think you could have written a whole book just about him. um, And it, it really is the most extraordinary not just him as a person, he was extraordinary as a person, but he, he wasn't the only one. There were lots of indigenous peoples working as part of these expeditions. And so what's extraordinary about him is that we have a lot of data about his life. But it shows just how much these explorers were relying on indigenous peoples and how much they lied about it afterwards.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And that goes back to the whole critique of, of Ray and, and talking about cannibalism I and mean, you even reference like Charles Dickinson saying yeah, that's right. Charles Dickens saying like, Oh yeah, no, they it was probably the indigenous people that yeah. you know, were the cannibals. <laughs> like and then yeah, he so was like, grasping
1: like, a straws, right? <laughs>
0: well was that sorry?
1: He was grasping a straws there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it shows that that just Racial hierarchy and and just that that whole ideology, um, coming through. And I, I sure hope that that original manuscript um, is found at some point because that would be a uh, super insightful. I imagine to to seeing what what was even edited out if if that was the yeah. the original or the, if that was the you know edited version. Um, yeah, no, that
1: would be fascinating. It's it's a real shame. Unfortunately, I think it might have um, there was an archive fire in the nineteenth century. And there's a chance that if it was kept that it could have been disappeared there. But it's not in the it's not at the um, in the archives as far as I know, it hasn't survived in the archives. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because that's one of the things that um that's one of the things that I that makes it difficult to write more uh inclusive Arctic history and sort of deconstruct these things, is that there's a real bias in the archive. And it's something that a lot of um, global historians of science are struggling with now, that because historically these the, the contributions of extra-European peoples have been um, erased, their archives weren't, they didn't have an archive, right? So their personal papers weren't kept. Um, we don't have a lot of, which means that we as historians now don't have a lot of data to work with. So sometimes you still sort of have to work in the gaps, uh, which can be frustrating because you want to know more, um, or you work with oral history, which a lot of excellent scholars um, are doing. Um, and um, it's, anyways, it sort of really shows how this like archival bias, even now, is shaping how we write these histories of science and these uh, global histories of um, exploration. Because we are working with the data that they in the 19th century, in this highly, uh, you know, racist colonial period, how, you know, with the data that they thought was important. And of course, they thought they themselves were the most important, right? Um, so they just didn't keep all the other other information. Um, and that makes it harder. But I think it's a challenge that's worth working through, especially because even if you don't have the data, just highlighting that the data does exist. You can also do a lot with that.
0: Yeah, that would seem to be the the first step to to trying to open up these these gaps or, or fill in the 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 absences that have that were both unintentionally and intentionally erased. And that's what kind of my project is is looking at the the Rocky Mountain Herbarium and and what it means for because it's not just you know historical narratives, it's actual science as well. and the creation really? of Western science overlaying the landscape with their own knowledge while completely ignoring um, indigenous perspectives and indigenous knowledge bases. Um, and so I mean, I guess that that leads me to to one of my final questions is kind of just like the material aspect of these these explorations, particularly with these really expensive um instruments and and um, the idea of formal science being being used or uh, being conducted through something like you need a, a chronometer or 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 these other other different um, tools that wouldn't necessarily be accessible to even just a, maybe like a settler who who um, is is coming into these contested areas. Um, I don't. Is there something you'd like to just kind of speak? towards that
1: topic? Sure. First, can I just say your research sounds absolutely fascinating. I look forward to reading it once you're finished with it. Oh, it sounds excellent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these, a lot of the scientific instruments were expensive, you know, just like scientific instruments nowadays are expensive. If you want, uh, you know, the the newest, newest, most up-to-date material, you have to pay for it. And it was the same in the 19th century. Now, one of the funny things about expeditions and this and, and the objects, the scientific objects on the expeditions is that a lot of the manufacturers for the big British expeditions, a lot of the, a lot of the um, scientific instrument manufacturers provided their uh, instruments to the expeditions for them to then um, basically test run them. Because if you could then test run them in the Arctic, then you could get a lot of new data you could then uh, work with as an instrument maker to sort of like fine tune and figure out what was working, what wasn't working, right? So especially in the earlier part of the 19th century, you get a lot of uh, cross-comparative data when it came to the uh, instruments. And so you often see that they specify what instrument they were using at which time and what data they uh, sort of like got with it to try to be really open about how they had actually found the um, the measurements. And sometimes they found that these tools weren't actually working and they had to use some other ones. And so that's sort of like a neat thing you can see about like how how the manufacturers were using these expeditions as a virtual test lab, like an actual test lab in the Arctic. But when it came to having the most up-to-date uh, scientific instruments, it was also a prestige thing for the explorers, right? Because if you could say that you were working with the best... And the most accurate uh, tools, then your data would also be more precise and more trustworthy. So you could use it as a way of showing that you were um, that you were a real scientific authority that people should listen to. So you could sort of use it to validate your own, uh, you know, regional and scientific expertise. If you couldn't afford them or if you didn't have anyone to donate them to you, then you had to start drawing on other, uh, you know, uh, other parts of your toolkit, as it was.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting and, and so important. And we can see how even that that creates a hierarchy in itself as science becomes more institutionalized and professionalized and, and these barriers, technologically speaking and materially speaking, um, grow um, higher and, and, and more um, separate um, between just general knowledge making, I guess, and um, I guess one question i have and this is i don't know if you said it or not in the book how did they write because it would be i i would imagine ink would freeze in the arctic so like did they did they have trouble like recording their data or did you run into that at all
1: um you get a lot of complaints definitely in there when you look at the okay so travel narratives travel narratives were not just as they were published, weren't as they were written down, even though they'd like to like make it seem like it was, uh, you know, just like the, the published version of their account. But so when you look at their actual journals and their handwritten journals, you can just see a lot of complaining about everything, about the, you know, about the ink and about the paper, about their hands being cold, about them not having enough heat. Um, so yeah, you know, they definitely had problems writing things down which also then goes to show that a lot of the things were written down afterwards. So while they were out traveling, if they, for example, had a, had their ships, a lot of the British expedition had two ships. So they had the two ships harbored as their winter quarters, and then they used dog sleds to then um, go out and start serving and such. And the amount of writing down they could do while they were out was minimal because it was just, you know, it's just too difficult even in the later nineteenth century, when they started taking photographs, it was also just too difficult to do it while traveling. Um, and so you have those like restraints, and that really, once you start thinking about that, you realize that these narratives, as much as they wanted to say that they were a truth and truthful and direct account of their observations and experiences, it was always reconstructed, right?
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And and that was one thing that Rink said about um, Sir Sack's narrative, right, is that he he had a good memory. And so like as a way of of legitimizing that narrative. So that's I don't know it's so interesting to, to think about how how all of this knowledge is produced and then reproduced and then tried to or attempted to um disperse into the public and then see how the public interprets it and everything we could we could keep talking about this stuff for hours (laughs) but um, i don't want to take up too much more of your time so so i think we'll we'll probably end here except for our our um last kind of new books network tradition of asking what do you what what's what's next except for obviously the uh josephine perry uh (laughs) article that that you're going to publish um what what are you working on now
1: So I'm actually working on a new project called Economizing Science and National Identities, which um, focuses on the history of the Royal Greenlandic Trading Company. So I'm basically writing a book about the trading company and about how the trading company functioned to construct the national identities in Greenland and Denmark and the historical relationship between Greenland and Denmark. So I'm focusing on the trade, and I'm focusing on how um, the administration influenced lives, and I try to follow that through the flow of objects and of people traveling back and forth between Denmark and Greenland. And so it's it's a project that's uh, very um, uh, very thankful to the uh, Carlsberg Foundation, which has has funded this project for the next year and a half. I had two years to do it. Um, so I'm really lucky to be able to do that. Um, I'm based now at Aarhus University in History of Ideas and in the same department I did my undergraduate in. So it's almost like a homecoming for me. Uh, so yeah, I'm writing this new book. And um, if anyone listening is interested in working on the Greenland Trading Company, please do get in touch and uh, we can figure something out.
0: <laughs> That's so amazing. And uh, we definitely wish you the best of luck. And, and thank you for for you know bringing more more danish history to 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 light because it's definitely interesting but i i have not been exposed to it um much at all so so i appreciate that as well
1: now thank you so much for inviting me to come here and talk to you it's been wonderful
0: yes it's been a pleasure thank you so much and have a wonderful day
1: you too